I'm Tavi Nasir, and this is Leadership Biz Cafe, a podcast that provides insights and tools to help leaders take on the challenges and opportunities found in leading today's workplaces. Leadership Biz Cafe is brought to you by Tavi Nasir Leadership, our leadership firm that offers keynotes and corporate trainings in both in-person and virtual settings that will help you to improve the way you lead and guide your organization's growth and future successes. To find out how we can help you today with your leadership challenges and discover your untapped opportunities, visit our website at tavinasir.com. Well, it's a new year, and while we have some interesting guests lined up for 2023 who I'm looking forward to speaking with, in keeping with what I shared in my last Leadership Espresso shot, I wanted to use this episode as an opportunity to look back at 2022 and share with you my top five favorite insights and moments from my guests. And there's no question that one of the highlights for me last year was getting the chance to sit down and talk about leadership with Tom Peters and Jim Cousins. In addition to being able to join these two in a discussion on the challenges leaders face today, what I remember about this episode is how this was the first time these two have had a chance to speak with one another in over 30 years. So it was gratifying to help facilitate a long overdue reunion between these two leadership luminaries. In this clip from that episode, Tom and Jim talk about hiring, collaboration, and trust in the context of the ongoing debate around flexible work and the push by some leaders for a return to office. I'm glad you guys are bringing up this issue of trust and actually empathy, because just this morning I was giving a keynote on leading with empathy to a company in Germany, and I've been doing a couple this year, and it's amazing to see how much it just lights people up. Like People are hungry for it. As much as you're saying you're a frothy fanatic for people-centric leadership, Tom, it's also becoming more apparent that people are also starting to realize the importance and necessity of empathy towards how we lead because it affects how we communicate. And, you know, to build on your point, Jim, that you shared about the issue of trust, this is one of the things I find interesting. Whenever I see these organizations, it's always coming down from the CEO, right? It's the real top-down command and control style leadership where, okay, I'm going to pass a decree. Everyone's returned to the office on this date, but there's no rationale explaining for why we were so effective. You complimented us. You said, my goodness, productivity went through the roof. You're doing so well. Thank you for being so dedicated to the organization. Now return to office. And I was speaking to some CIO executives a few months ago, and I said to them, like, obviously, you guys were leading the charge because you had to expedite the digitization of your workplace so that people could actually work from anywhere. So isn't there a role here for you guys to play in if there is a need to return to the office? Like, for example, Tom, you brought up the idea of, those spontaneous interactions, shouldn't that be communicated so that we encourage trust in leadership? There's a reason why you want us to return off as opposed to just, well, it's our decree. It's just the way I like things to be done here. Yes. Well, decree, decree with, with uh, uh, variables like this obviously doesn't get you very far. Uh, you know, I, there was, I can't remember the, yeah, I can't remember a damn thing at my age. I can't remember the title of the book, but but what the, the title of the book was, the most important decisions that any organization makes are the hiring decisions. And most people are not, most leaders are not competent hirers. And 
and it's little stuff and big stuff. Uh, oh, Jim, you know the authors, and I do too, and I can't remember their names, but there's a wonderful book called Management Lessons from the Mayo Clinic. And the one thing which stuck in my mind is I'm the boss and uh, I'm looking for candidates for a neurosurgical position. And Jim Kuzis comes in and he has got a record that just makes me almost weep. And we have an interview for 45 minutes. What Jim doesn't know is that during the interview, I don't know whether I'm doing it with a pen on my arm or whatever, I am literally counting the number of times that Jim uses the word we versus the number of times that Jim uses the word I. And it is as simple as it sounds. If the eyes beat the we's, you know, good for you on your neurosurgical whatever. You know, and, and the thing about this is, incidentally, is uh, Mayo is at the top of every list that I see. And this whole thing for Mayo goes back to 1914. Uh, Dr. Mayo from the start said team medicine, team medicine, team medicine, et cetera. And God alone knows, I don't know about all over the world, but in the United States, team medicine ain't what we practice in the average hospital in, in, in America these days. You know, and, and Tom, team and collaboration go hand in hand with trust. If you don't have trust, you can't have an effective team. You can't have a team that collaborates, uh, that's innovative. I mean, it, it's trust rules. And, uh, you know, what, what sadly, what we're finding right now, and this is Edelman Trust Barometer, indicates that we have, ex excuse me for using the word, but a pandemic of, tr of distrust. Trust, distrust, distrust is now the default position for the majority of people around the world. That is really sad, sad news. How are we going to build a workplace again if we have to go back to work where people are collaborative, act as teams when their default is distrust? Now, that's the bad news. That's the bad news. The good news is that among all the institutions that Edelman looked at in 2021, uh, reporting in 2022, uh, business or the workplace is the one place that's gone up in levels of, of trust of leaders compared to all other institutions, government, uh, NGOs even have declined, but business has increased. So in looking for solutions to this problem, people are turning to business and even demanding that they be more responsive uh, because they don't think the other institutions are going to. And the other bad news is uh, over about two thirds of people, according to Edelman, uh, do not see a civil way in which we're gonna resolve the problems of distrust right now. So how, how, do, how, do, we, how do we deal with this problem? I think we deal with this problem when Tanvir talks to people in Germany about empathy and Tom works with people and repeats his extreme humanism message. And we, Barry Poser and I, my co-author, and I talk to our clients about how important trust is to building effective collaborative workplaces, whether it's on site in an office or whether it's virtual like we are right now.
So my second favorite guest moment from 2022 comes from my conversation with Stephen M. R. Covey. This was Stephen's second time on my show, and this time we were talking about his latest book, Trust and Inspire, which is easily one of my favorite reads from 2022. In this clip, I asked Stephen about a question I often get after one of my leadership keynotes about how leaders can help their employees find purpose in what they do and how that ties into being an inspiring leader for those under your care. I think for many of us, when we think of inspirational leaders, we tend to think of them in terms of us feeling a connection to them, that their words and actions inspire us in terms of how we want to be leaders ourselves. But when it comes to trust and inspire leaders, they not only inspire us because they make us feel heard and understood or heard and seen, but they also do so because they help us feel like what we do matters, that there's this clear line we can draw between our contributions and the collective purpose that defines why we do what we do. And I know I've discussed this in some of my keynotes, and so I've had this thing, and I imagine some of my listeners are thinking the same thing, which is, that's great, Tavir. I love that idea, but what does that look like in practice? How am I supposed to inspire people by connecting with them and then creating inspiration by making them see meaning in what they do? Because as I said, this is a question I often get an answer in my keynotes and workshops about finding a sense of meaning in what we do. But I would love if you could share here, Stephen, how we bridge these two needs in order to be inspiring through our leadership. Yes, because here's the interesting thing. The data shows, study from Zanger Folkman, that the number one attribute that people want from their leader is to be inspired. They have that leader inspire them. And yet it's way down on the list of what they're actually experiencing. And, and I think it's because we've too often equated inspiring others to, with charisma. And, and I think that's a mistake, you know, as if you have to be supernatural to inspire people and they're not the same. I know a lot of people who are charismatic who might motivate, but they don't inspire. I know other people who no one would describe as quote charismatic, but who are extremely inspiring because of who they are and how they lead and how they care about people. And, and so separate charisma from inspiration. And the whole premise is everyone can inspire. It's a learnable skill. Inspiring others is a learnable skill. Now, how do you inspire? So let's get practical. How do you inspire? Well, the first two stewardships will inspire people. In other words, when you model the behavior that inspires, so you're already inspiring when you begin to model, when you trust other people, that inspires to be trusted as the most inspiring form of human motivation. So you're halfway there when you're modeling and trusting already. What brings us home and really goes to the next level of inspiring others is when we connect with people and connect to purpose. So connect with people is all about um, caring and belonging that we are demonstrating that we care about people. Like the expression goes, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Caring is what really connects us. And when you show that you care about your people and they feel it and experience it, they not only will trust you, they will feel inspired by you. And, and um, if they don't feel that you care, they won't feel any sense of inspiration. So this is a profound differentiator and we can all learn to care more. I love how Bob Chapman talks about this as your span of care, not a span of control, but a span of care. 
And so we got it. Caring is what really enables us to inspire others. And then on a team, it's a sense of belonging and inclusion. And we're trying to create that sense of belonging and inclusion as we build our teams. And when people feel it and sense it, that inspires them. And all of us as leaders can learn to connect with people through caring at the interpersonal level and through belonging at the team level. We can get good at this. They're learnable uh, competencies that we can apply. And then when we add to it one more piece, which is connecting to purpose, to meaning and contribution. So our goal is to connect people to purpose, meaning, and to meaning, the contribution, to why it matters, purposeful work, meaningful work. What matters to people is mattering. So we're trying to show why the work that we do matters and why their role matters. And you can create and, can, and embed purpose, meaning, and contribution into almost any role, into almost any organization. And, and, uh, and that's what we're trying to do. Um, and so um, when you do that, it changes everything. I'll give a good example of this. I look at uh, Pepperdine University. I spent time with their university, with their, with their team, and, and with their business school, the Graziato School of Business. And you know what their motto is? It's this. We are not trying to build leaders who are best in the world. We are trying to create leaders who are best for the world. So they are all about best for the world leaders. It's all about contribution. It's all about meaning. It's all about purpose, mattering. You know, best in the world, nothing wrong with that per se. That will motivate, but it won't inspire. Best for the world inspires. That's real leadership. That's service. That's contribution. That's giving back. That's mattering. That's moving from success to significance. And when you're when you tap into that kind of purpose, you know, here, so imagine you're teaching now at Pepperdine and you're all about best for the world leaders, how you're going to teach differently. Imagine you're a student there and you're about best for the world leaders, how you view your role, your stewardship as a student to become a great leader that can impact the world and society and people everywhere. Imagine if you're a, a staff member Imagine if you're a janitor and you're all about best for the world leaders. That's what I mean by creating and embedding purpose, meaning, and contribution into any role, into any organization. And, and so, you know, for some, it's easier. For others, you just have to be more creative, but you can do it. Everyone wants purpose. It's the secret sauce today. And, and when you connect people to purpose, you will inspire them. And we can all learn how to do this. And so inspiring others is a learnable skill. How? By connecting with people through caring and belonging and connecting people to purpose, to meaning, and to contribution. Inspiring others is learnable and everyone can inspire. That's, that in and of itself is inspiring to me. And I hope it is to our listeners because it changes the paradigm from inspiring is just for the select few, the charismatic. No, it's, it's a stewardship of leadership. Everyone can inspire. It's your job. So let's get good at this as leaders. So one of the issues I've been wanting to discuss on my podcast is diversity in today's workplaces and what leaders need to be doing to really make more inclusive, psychologically safe work environments. Something that's becoming more and more critical for today's organizations as both the workplace and the talent pool becomes more and more diverse. That's why my third favorite moment from 2022 
was this conversation with Dr. Marlett Jackson, the Global Director of Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion at Virgin Pulse. In particular, this segment where I asked Marlett, what do we need to do to ensure we're getting past our own perceptions and biases to make sure we're able to empower the best in everyone we lead? I find there's an interesting contradiction in most workplaces today when it comes to diversity and inclusion initiatives, where on the one hand, people want to work for a company that's inclusive and welcoming. And yet when it comes to providing education to help people understand what can they do to facilitate that kind of workplace environment, there's this tendency to think, well, I'm not a racist. I don't discriminate. So this doesn't apply to me. In fact, I read an interview with the CEO of one diversity, equity, and inclusion training firm who pointed out how most people think they don't need diversity training, so they don't pay attention and retain the information and tools that are being discussed. Now, before we discuss this at the institutional level, what are some things people should be mindful of to make sure their biases and blind spots are not adversely impacting their ability to connect, see, and understand their colleagues? What are some things that people can do to ensure they're having more inclusive conversations where they're making sure they're getting outside of their own perceptions and perspectives so they can empathize and understand the perspectives of those who have a different experience from theirs? I think one of the first things you have to do is before you can address, you know, kind of your biases, you have to understand what they are. There's been research that has shown it's usually the people who think that they're the least biased that are the most biased. (laughs) And so the first step is just understanding what what you can do. And I know that there have been many um, kind of criticisms, but a first step is potentially taking the imposted association test um, by a couple of different uh, Harvard and other um, kind of researchers, because then you can have an understanding of, well, I have a bias against this demographic or that demographic or that demographic. And once you have that information and that knowledge, then you can say, okay, What are the resources that I can do in order to understand the root of those biases and what I can do to mitigate the likelihood that that they're going to affect how I work and how I show up? Because the fact of the matter is that we all have unconscious biases, every single one of us, including people who do work like me in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Why? Because we're human. And it's literally unconscious bias, but mental shortcut that our brains do subconsciously to quickly process information, but it's based on different types of cultural stereotypes. And that comes from our society. So the first thing is acknowledging that we all have bias, testing to see which type of biases you have, even though we all have biases about everything. And then thinking about what are the resources I can do to understand these biases and to mitigate their effect. There are several different, and you know, you might be a learner who likes videos, might be a learner who likes to read. There are several different mediums you can go through to understand whether it's podcasts or TED Talks or books or articles. Find whichever medium is most appealing to you and then do a deep dive into understanding the root of these biases and things you can do to mitigate their likelihood that it affects how you show up in the workplace. So I think part of it is a self journey, um, a learning journey of discovery, exploration, but also openness to understanding that you're human. And part of it is understanding what biases you have, strategies, but also understanding that your biases have negative impacts for others. So you have a personal responsibility to remedy that. My fourth favorite guest moment from 2022 comes from my conversation with cross-cultural consultant and author Laura Kriska. For this interview, I did something different to start things off. 
welcoming Laura to my podcast in Japanese as she grew up and worked for several years in Japan. And that effort did help illustrate one of the key points she made in her book, The Business of We, for how leaders can create a workplace environment that does away with any us versus them mindset in favor of a more inclusive one. In this clip, Laura addresses why organizations continue to struggle with diversity and creating a more inclusive and welcoming workplace environment. You know, what I find interesting about this subject, Laura, is how with a growing talent shortage, it only makes sense for leaders and organizations to diversify the different culture groups, as you mentioned, that you use to grow and build your workforce. But of course, this then begs the question that if there is a tangible benefit to we building where we embrace diversity and encourage a greater participation, as you said, from a diverse group of people, why are so few organizations doing a good job with this? What's causing so many organizations to resist truly embracing diversity and narrowing the gap between us and them? Okay, I know why. <laughs> I'm hoping you do. <laughs> and why the reason is so there's a home team, right? Mm. There's a home team in every organization. If we think about the home team in the United in you know the United States or North America, uh, corporate America, it's mostly um, the identifiers are white middle-aged men. You can throw in kind of straight and you know Christian in there as well. And I'm not against any of those features or factors of a person. Th that's just, a, you know, that's how people identify who are, um, who self-identify, who are in leading positions. Um, it's different in Japan, for example. I worked in, in Japan and the home team was primarily uh, Japanese middle-aged men. Um, so every organization has a home team. And the home team means that you have an advantage. You are surrounded by people who are similar to you, might have similar backgrounds, similar values. And when you're trying to expand that notion of who belongs, people on the home team, and, and let me say, I self-identify as middle-aged, white, and female. So I'm, I'm in very, very close proximity to the home team in corporate America. Uh, and this is part of why I know this is true, is that people on the home team, even if they have the mindset of, yes, I want to expand this circle, yes, we want to diversify, the reason they don't is that they're terrified of doing or saying the wrong thing. They don't want to offend anybody, and it is so much safer and more comfortable to do nothing or do the minimum or do what legal department tells you or HR tells you and check off a list and stay in this very narrow lane. And that's why after more than 50 years since civil rights legislation was passed in the United States, there has been negligible change, negligible change, because there's been no penalty for people on the home team when they fail to take meaningful action. And that's where we are today. And, and the reason we building can be a, a solution is that we building provides a practical, mostly comfortable path to get from that uncomfortable, I don't know what to do or say, to action. Because without action, there will be no transformation.
My fifth favorite guest moment from 2022 comes courtesy of serial entrepreneur and best-selling author Faisal Hawk. This moment stood out for me, not only because Faisal shares some timely food for thought at a time when many of us are worried about a possible global recession this year and what kind of storm we need to be prepared to weather, but also because he shares a very personal story for how we can find opportunities to do good in the face of uncertainty and adversity. Now, Faisal, one thing these four drivers of change have created is a fair amount of uncertainty about the near future, let alone what's the long-term view. And I love this bit of personal advice you share in this first section of your book of lessons learned for how to deal with uncertainty brought on by such upheavals as you've described. Of course, one that I particularly liked mirrors an idea Canadian astronaut and former commander of the International Space Station, Chris Hadfield, mentioned is something he learned from his time at NASA which is learning to sweat the small stuff. Because if you think of what you could do if the worst thing happened, you no longer worry about it because you know you have ideas of possible solutions or workarounds. So I was wondering before we delve into the opportunities these four drivers of change are creating and are leaving out there for us to explore, could you share some of these personal lessons of yours for how we can deal with these disruptive changes that make it harder for us to have a clear view of the future? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, the you know, I'm in you, you. That example is a great example. Uh, on my desk, I have the last lecture, and you obviously know in the last lecture, you know, it's like, uh, you know, one of the thing uh, uh, that that uh, I have learned is that you know you can't really, um, you know, focus on future and and but also cannot be fearful about future because uh if you look at you know I I I I look at these things as a as a kind of like a um optimism with pragmatism in the sense that if you prepare for the worst case scenario then maybe uh you know the the changes and surprises wouldn't be so shocking right and and uh, certain things you can't plan for so I will give you a very personal example and it's very very personal uh, you know, I was when I was writing Lyft, um, or actually when I when I thought of writing Lyft, uh, I have a nineteen. You know, at that time my son was eighteen and a half. He he started college and uh, uh, he comes home and sick. We think it's uh, COVID. Turns out he has a is a rare um, uh, a blood cancer, and you don't expect uh, your child to come home with blood cancer news, right? So so it kind of totally threw our whole family uh, upside down. And I almost I kind of stopped everything. But I went back to last lecture. And one of the things I learned from last lecture was that it doesn't matter what the future is. You have to plow through and plan for the worst case scenario and find motivation into it and, and do the best you can do for a positive, uh, 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 you know, for a positive uh, present and hopefully for a positive uh, future. So... I, you know, found the, the energy and the motivation uh, uh, to, to, to kick, obviously to take care of him, but, and we is doing fine, by the way, now, and, uh, but also uh, created a whole uh, new organization, and I'm, I'm doing quite a bit of writing, all for the uh, um, hope of generating enough uh, revenue for, for 100% uh, 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 charity donation to cancer research, right? So 
I wouldn't have done that, if, uh, you know, if I wasn't facing with that kind of personal adversity, right? So often enough, you know, these personal adversity creates opportunity to do good uh, for yourself and for others. And to me, that's the insp inspiration and the optimism you can find in anything. So whether you look at pandemic, whether you look at climate change, whether you look at, uh, you know, disastrous financial situation or personal health issues, uh, you know, sometimes it's great opportunity to do some good. So that's how I live. And that's what I try to portray in Lyft, messed up while I was, I've been dealing with, uh, uh, you know, taking care of my boy. Well, I have to tell you, Faisal, I appreciate you sharing this personal story, and I'm relieved to hear he's doing better. As a parent myself, I know from personal experience how quickly the solid ground beneath your feet falls apart when something happens to your child, even though that's when you need that solid footing to be there. So I appreciate you sharing this, Faisal. And again, I'm really glad to hear he and your family are doing better. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much. You know, we've been blessed and I count my blessing every day. And, we, you know, we, I mean, you know, in the book, we talked a lot about healthcare. Uh, part of this was a kind of a, like a renewed interest in healthcare uh, because what I've been going through, and, you know, I, my mother who was elderly and she, uh, you know, we had to deal, deal with her uh, during the pandemic because she was at a, you know, she's at a nursing home. So, uh, you know, I mean, you can look at things from a very different angle, and that's what creates optimism, right? So uh, it, it, as an example, I mean, telehealth, uh, you know, the way it it, it it got a renewed life because of pandemic, right? I mean, and a lot of this microsurgery and, and a lot of the way we are doing research in healthcare space, those are all opportunity because of these, uh, you know, these, these massive change drivers that we've seen last five, six years. And I don't think we would have had that if we didn't have those kind of adversity. So I always look at things from that angle. And and so you can't really plan for future, but sometimes when you have massive obstacle, uh, you can look at, uh, you know, a silver lining and and kind of shift your mindset to, to, to create something uh, positive and focus on positive aspect of our global society. So those are some of the moments from 2022 that stood out for me. And I'd love to hear what moments from my episodes of 2022 resonated with you. You can drop me a line through my contact form on my website at tavernasir.com as I'd love to hear what were your favorite moments from my podcast in 2022. And we have more to come this year, so I hope you'll check out what we have in store for 2023. Until then... I'm Tavin Asir, and you've been listening to Leadership Biz Cafe.